Would you all be terribly offended if we started a minute early? That'd be all right? Because uh, we can, because we can take a few minutes and pray together. We had, uh, we had, I think, one of the highest number of children this Sunday from, from is that right, Charles? I think you were there from a, like, five-year-old and down. We had 41 this Sunday, which you say, well, why did we have so many of those little kids in Sunday school this week? Well, because we had a, a big influx of young adults attend Sunday school this week. So um, does that make sense? It's kind of hand in glove. So we want to just keep, keep trying to reach the next generation uh, for Christ. And uh, so some, some starting some Sunday school classes. And so that was a real blessing. So I real thank the Lord for that. That college age class so, uh, is doing well, too. Really thankful for um, Philip uh, and... Uh, Allison, right, Philip and Allison, Laney, so it's good. Um, we did the clothes closet Sunday, and this Sunday we'll be doing the food uh, distribution. So I think that starts at 1.30, is that right? 1.30 this Sunday, so remember that. Um, we need, Night to Shine is about, is, I think it's about a month away, is that right? Three or four weeks, not too far. So it'll be my first one to get to see the full thing. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, so remember that other things that are coming up. What else? What other things am I need to, do? We need to be reminded of. Member meeting Sunday night went well, um, but presented the budget, some committees, uh, some things like that. So that was all uh, positive, going well. And then certainly uh, some folks to remember in prayer is Martha Koss and Miss Eunice. They've been moved to uh, Pontotoc to a rehab there. Um, and just continue to pray for the Dabneys, uh, Don and Teresa. And um, Kathy, Kathy is back, her and Doris. Um, some of you know that she lost her, her sister Robin this past week. So just, uh, just continue to pray for the, for the family. Um, Brother, Brother Morgan, I think, is still in the hospital. Is that right, Tim? Is he still there? Do you know? And, but is he think he's getting better? Okay. So keep, keep praying for Brother Herbert. So... Um, um, all right, Carolyn Brooks, uh, remember her, Kim, Kim, uh, the daughter Mormon, and then Jed and Julie, and the Bryants, and, and uh, remember them, brother, brother Rudon, and um, and the uh, Voyles family, loss of Abby's mom. So we'll remember to pray for them. And then I don't know if y'all heard, but uh, talked to uh, Andy uh, and Michelle Milam this afternoon. She'd gone in for some tests Monday and Tuesday, got some results back, and so the, the word was that she was in remission. So there was nothing there. So we, we praise the Lord for that. And honestly, I told him when he, when he spoke with me on the phone, I said, I'm, I was really surprised to hear that. And, and uh, so shame on us sometimes for our, uh, for our weak faith. Uh, so that's a, we praise the Lord for that. Um, okay. Let me pray with you, and uh, we're going to hit the ground running here tonight and see if we can uh, strengthen ourselves a little bit. And uh, Yeah, go ahead, Ricky. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. pray with you. Father, we thank you tonight that you are faithful, you're, you're merciful and gracious, and you never change, and you have all power. And we come before you tonight with uh, boldness, with confidence, Lord. We thank you for the gracious invitation that you've extended to us to, to pray, and uh, we're, we're thankful for the, for the privilege of being able to do that. We we ask that you administer to all these families, those with uh, cancer, and going to the Morrises and the, the Brantleys, and ask, Lord, you continue to minister to them. And we thank you for this and praise you, Lord, for the good word for Michelle tonight. We're just so grateful. 
and for Brother Herbert and the Dabneys and Miss Brooks and those who, God, just need your strength. We continue to commit them to your care. Thank you for those doctors and nurses and those in, uh, who provide care, those in nursing homes and rehabs. Lord, we, we, just, we just thank you for uh, the blessing that you have provided us with in, in just, just good care, Lord. And so uh, we pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would uh, just guide us tonight, help us to listen and learn well and in all of it, that our, our faith and confidence in your word would be made stronger and that our faith would increase as you continue to teach us new things. And we, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we uh, started last week looking at this uh, whole idea of the history of the Bible. I uh, mentioned to someone, I was actually Jack, we were talking about that and and. Uh, I know in both college and in uh, in seminary, I said I must have been a, been asleep when we were going through looking for a handout. There's I think some on those tables, Charles. So I don't know if I was asleep during the processes when they cover those. I knew uh, know a lot more about the canonization, the process of how the New Testament came together, but was pretty weak uh, really on how how did we get the Old Testament. So. Uh, I want to talk about that with you tonight, and uh, as we do that, I'm going to want to start out with just us looking at some scripture uh, about the Bible, and so uh, Jonathan, Kent, won't you look up, would you look up a passage of uh, uh, scripture, look up 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1 verse 20 and 21, and then I'm going to ask that uh, Roy, you look up Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12, and then if we would, Pete, if you would look up 2 Timothy 3.16. And so 2 Peter 1, if you have your Bible, uh, you can either turn to these individually, maybe do a little Bible drill, see how quick you are, but we'll start with 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Hebrews 4.12, 2 Timothy 3.16. Just kind of lay a foundation for uh, what the Bible says regarding itself, and then we'll go back and uh, kind of plow through some of this. All right, so Jonathan, why don't you read loudly and slowly 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. All right, so knowing this, No prophecy, a word of scripture is of any private interpretation for no prophecy, no scripture came by what? What does that mean? No no scripture just came by the will of man. Right. But what? But it came through holy men of God They spoke and they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that makes it very clear that you and I as Christians believe that that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, moved and inspired, initiated men to write Scripture. So that's one of those verses. Uh, Hebrews 4.12. So what is that saying? The word of God, scripture is what? It's alive. It's living. What does it mean that it pierces? Some translations say it cuts, pierces, divides. Right? Convicts. I mean, you, you all have sensed that, right? You, you sit under the word, you read the word, hear it taught, hear it preached. And the Holy Spirit does something within us, confronts us, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You you believe that? That God 
through his word, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Then 2 Timothy 3.16, who had that? Pete? All scripture. So when Paul was writing this to Timothy, what scripture was he referring to? All scripture, but in that day, in the first century, what scripture did they have? The Old Testament. So he's saying all of the old, the old covenant, the Old Testament, all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God. Um, and so just some encouraging verses regarding uh, what the Bible says uh, concerning itself. On your handout, I, I'm just going to mention, touch on a few things, and cover some new things as well. But uh, you see that word canon? Some of you may not have ever heard that word before, other than you think about oh, a cannon, like a, a military item, you know, that, but uh, cannon is a, is a word that describes the process of collecting the books of the Bible, so the canon. So the books that are contained in the Old and New Testament, uh, were, there was a canon, canonization process of how those books came together. That's called the canon. And we believe that the Bible is a closed canon. All right? The list of books that we recognize in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, uh, they're divine books, uh, again, as given to us through the inspiration of God. And closed means they can't be added to nor taken away. So if someone were to, I mean, someone could, if someone wanted to print a Bible and leave out some books of the Old Testament or they wanted to publish a new Bible and leave out some books of the New Testament, they could. But you and I believe as Christians that this is the canon, is canon that God has provided of his word and it's closed, none to be added to nor taken away. Um, Deuteronomy, if you want to write these verses down, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2. And uh, let me see how quickly I can get there. Deuteronomy 4, didn't bring my glasses. Deuteronomy 4, 2. Um, I want you, as, as God delivers his word, listen to this verse from Moses. You shall not add to the words which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So you don't add to this and you don't take away from it. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Can you think of any passage in the New Testament that says, don't add to this nor take away? Speak out loud. Revelation 22, 18. John closes and says, anyone that adds to the book of this, of this, adds to this, or takes away of this, plagues will be upon them. Also, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, that says anyone who reads this will be what? Will be blessed, who reads and studies this. So, again, it's closed. Nothing is to be added. Nothing is to be taken away. It's been canonized. If you, the, the, that comes from a Greek word, and I've listed it there for you, canon, uh, which literally means a rod. So, in the Greek language, a canon meant a rod or uh, a straight rule, a rod or a straight rule. So when we apply that to the Bible, um, the Bible is a rule, it's a rod, it's a standard that you and I as followers of Christ, faith in God, followers of Christ, we adhere to. I uh, provided a couple quotes there. Thomas Aquinas in 1225, or not 1225, around 1260 said, Canonical scripture alone is the what? It's the rule. It's the rule of faith. Our faith comes from the word. Romans 10, 70. Uh, the word of God comes through faith, right? So it's the rule of faith. The Westminster Confession, 1647. After listing the 66 books of the Old, the New Testament adds, all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith. It's the canon. 
It's the standard. It's the rule. So that means two things. That you and I believe that uh, the books in the Bible, as we, and we're talking about more specifically right now about the Old Testament, but it also includes the New Testament. We believe that all the books of the Old Testament are accepted as holy scripture. They're sacred writings given by God. And we also believe they're the standard, the rule for all teaching and practice. Uh, why is that important? That you and I as a Christian, as faith in God through, through the Lord Jesus Christ, why is it important that we believe the Bible to be holy scripture, holy writ, and the standard, the rule for what we believe, what we teach, and how we live? Um, so our faith, this is what we believe, and this is our practice. This is how we b behave. So behave, belief leads to behavior. So sacred scripture, the rule, the standard for what we believe, and thus hopefully how we behave. So the Bible both prescribes and it also regulates prescribes how we're to live and regulates regulates everything really um, hopefully it regulates my life my behavior it regulates my marriage it regulates how I parent it, it regulates my speech it's, it's to regulate the church right this is not a free for all everybody does whatever they want to do in the church no, it prescribes and it regulates. Without that, everyone is free to do whatever is right in their own eyes. I thought Jack did a great job preaching that a couple weeks ago. That could be translated, everyone does whatever they feel like doing. Sounds pretty contemporary, pretty, pretty relevant. So let me, let me tell you why I think this is so serious for us. Um, and Jack was also in the office this week and we were talking about some things and he was talking about fifth and sixth grade students all the way through high school and, and so they're doing, going through First John on Wednesday nights and so he's studying and teaching, trying to help them to be stronger in knowing Christ, their faith in God, what they believe. And so we got into this discussion. So this is why this is so important. So let me give you a scenario. An 18-year-old kid, young man, young woman, grows up into a Christian house, is kept in church, and they grow up in church, and they, they make a profession of faith. They uh, are baptized. Um, they know stories in the Bible. And then they go away to Mississippi State or Ole Miss. I'm just possible scenario, okay? And this going to be any different, won't be any different if they go to University of Michigan or some other place. They go to a state school, right, some place, and they're going to enroll as a freshman in required classes. They're going to have to take some basics, some English classes, some math, some sciences. You with me? And so that's required. So many math, science combinations, English, all these basic things you require. So they take a biology class. They take a chemistry class. And they're required to uh, read and study a certain text. Well, almost all the professors and almost all of the textbooks are going to undermine the Bible. Okay? If they take an English literature class and they study, this is probably one of the greatest pieces of literature that's ever been written. They're going to study it as literature, but the way they study it in the university will undermine the inspiration of Scripture. And then they're going to be around other peers who also, um, if they come out openly and say they're a follower of Christ and they believe the Bible, they're going to be made fun of and sometimes openly. How can you be so ignorant to believe that there really was a flood and a boat and God put two kinds of animals of every kind on that 
on that boat. You believe that? You believe literally in Korea? So that's what happens. And everything that the Bible teaches, everything the Bible prescribes and regulates, culturally more and more is going to be undermined. Let me give you an example. If you believe in creation, culture more and more is going to undermine that. If you believe in the inspiration of the Bible, culture will go against that. It's myth. It's legend. It's just symbol. Denial of a supernatural God. Denial of a resurrection. That God became flesh, lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, died on a cross, was raised from the dead. That's going to be undermined. Um, denial that there is absolute truth in life, that truth that applies for all people in all cultures at all times, standards, rules that never change. This is right. That's wrong. That will be undermined. The exclusivity of the gospel will be undermined. All religions are valid. All religions are equal. As long as you're sincere, all of these paths will get you to the top of the mountain. That's what's going to be communicated. Abortion is okay, right? That's all right. Uh, sex before marriage, what's wrong with that? Why wouldn't you live together and kick the tires a little bit before you made that kind of commitment? That just seems just like the smart thing to do, right? That's the standard. That's the norm. Sex outside of marriage, more and more. Pornography, it's okay. What's the big deal? Drugs don't matter. Alcohol, really not a big deal. Gender identity, that's a big one today. It's all just relative. Instead of facts that you were designed by a creator, you were given male or female chromosomes, and you have certain parts that make you male and female, that's all based upon feelings or desires. That's what drives it. Redefinition of marriage. Uh, the permanency of marriage. Teaching on divorce and remarriage. All religions are equal. Church is unnecessary. Church practices are open to feelings and preferences. Heaven is not real. Hell is certainly not real. Accountability to God is to be ignored or denied. Afterlife. I mean, just... You hear me? It's all undermined. So why is it important that you and I, as God's people, believe in the inspiration of Scripture that it's sacred and also is because of the time in which we live? Most of all of us here tonight are pretty set. I don't care what somebody says to me. They're not, they're not going to change. Probably you too. You're not, they're not going to change your, your faith in Christ and your commitment to Scripture. But I guarantee you, your kids and your young ki your grandkids are going are gonna to go, go through a battle. Right? And there's probably more. But I'm just, I'm just, just what I jack and I know. Everything, everything that the Bible prescribes and regulates is going to be undermined. So, canonization, that we believe this is Holy Scripture, these are the standard, is a big issue. It's a big issue for church. So how did the, all right, you with me? You think I'm being overly dramatic? Um, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be uh, sensational. Local church here tonight in our community is voting on whether or not to stay with the Bible or to reinterpret the Bible. And by the way, that issue of sexual identity and sexual practice that's being voted on, there's eight places in the Bible that are very clear, eight places in the scriptures that are very clear on uh, sexual, um, what's, what's permissible by God and what's not permissible. It's very clear. There's also books by people who have taken those eight passages of scripture and explained them all the way culturally. But, so the, the stakes are high, okay? And uh, it's a big issue. 
So how did the canonization process take place regarding the Old Testament? And that's what we're talking about. So the word, you know, we have two divisions, Old Testament, New Testament. That word testament refers to a covenant. So you have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What is a covenant in the Bible? Uh, what are covenants? Well, a covenant is an agreement that God initiates with us. An agreement that God initiates with us. That's a covenant. Um, a covenant, I usually tell, when I meet with couples getting ready to get married, what is the difference between a covenant and a contract? Do you think that your marriage is a marriage contract or is it a marriage covenant? There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. Um, if if you go to borrow money from a bank, you're going to enter it. You're going to sign a contract. <laughs> okay? They're going to want to make sure that the terms and the conditions and all that are clear. That they're going to protect their interests. And you sign that also, that contract protects your interests. So this is what we both agree to. And so there's a contract. A covenant is one-sided. When God established covenants in the Bible, the covenant uh, was, uh, was always for our... I'm not really sure what God gets out of the deal other than us praising and giving glory, but the covenant was for him. Um, in other words, it's always for our best interests. He initiated. He did that which was for us. So if you think about even some examples of that... Uh, um, first covenant in the Bible um, could be considered a marriage covenant where God establishes that. Um, one man, one woman for a lifetime, it was to be permanent. It doesn't always happen because of sin. But you get over into the New Testament, that covenant still there. Uh, the application in that particular instance is once we are the bride of Christ. And guess what? Once we're united with Christ, I never have to be afraid that he's going to divorce me. It's a covenant. He initiated it towards us, and he's faithful to his covenants. Um, but the first covenant, there's other covenants in the Bible. Uh, the covenant that God made with Noah, right, and his descendants. And there was an external sign, that of a rainbow, was a reminder of that covenant. Um, in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God made a covenant with Abram. Remember when he called him and a covenant with him and his descendants? They would never break that covenant. And a sign or an external sign of that covenant was that of circumcision. In Exodus 24, God had entered into a blood covenant with Israel. And during the Exodus and that shedding of that blood, that sign pointed to another sign that would be fulfilled in Christ. So the, the, the covenant, the Old Testament, made God's will, his commands, known to his people. Um, but one of the limitations of the Old Covenant is it lacked power for keeping it. No one could keep it. Right? And so I'm getting a little of myself, but the New Covenant that we have provides both um, makes God's commands clear, but it also provides us with a desire to obey it and the power to keep it. Remember, there's a new law in the new covenant written on our hearts, right? It's that which is external has been moved to be more internal. So uh, in the Old Testament, um, the covenant that God established led to these books uh, of, of the Old Testament, um, and so we talked a little bit about that last year. Each of the books of the Old Testament were written uh, from 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., over 1,000 years. And that's how, that's the Old Testament. Um, by the way, I think this is worth thinking about. The, the New Testament church, the early church, uh, as described in Acts, primarily composed of who? What people groups comprised primarily the early church. Jews, right? And later, Gentiles were added in. By the way, study the first, the first half of the book of Acts. 
It's all about Jews coming to faith. It's all about the ministry of the apostle Peter ministering to Jews. And then the second half of the book of Acts is primarily about which, which apostle? Paul reaching Gentiles. So the early church was primarily Jews. Um, and uh, who adhered to the scriptures, which was the Old Testament. The law, history, writing, Psalms, prophets, all of that was their Bible. The church, as it got started, didn't owe its existence to scripture. The early church started and owed its existence to the person and the work of Christ. Right? That's how the church got started, was through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Paul in Romans chapter 1, the first six verses, makes that very clear. The church established, foundation was Christ. However, the early church still appealed to the Old Testament scriptures. If you study uh, Peter preaching in in the book of Acts, Paul preaching, all the other passages in the New Testament, they all go back and make, a, make an appeal in the Old Testament. Jesus did this throughout his ministry. When he's teaching, he's constantly quoting the Old Testament. Sunday, John 4, what did he say? He gets into this conversation with the woman of Samaria, and, she's, and they talk about the Messiah, that there's a Messiah, a Christ is coming, and he says, I'm your guy. I'm the man right here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And so he's con- which which gospel quotes more Old Testament than any other gospel? Which one? You know? Matthew. Matthew has far, far more Old Testament quotations. Why? Because Matthew is trying to reach Jews with the gospel. And so he uses a lot of the Old Testament to make his appeal. Um, and so just the point that I want to make is that um, Jesus believed the Old Testament. He's quoting it all the time. He believed in the supernatural miracles of the Old Testament. He believed in the story of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a whale in the belly of the fish three days, came out. He talks about that great, that's the great sign that will be given to people for as Jonah, and then he says, so is the son of man. So He's quoting from the Old Testament. He taught from the Old Testament about God, about himself. Um, prior, to his, prior to his resurrection, post-resurrection, when he appears to his disciples, he was constantly teaching them concerning himself from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. There is a, um, there is a, a unique divine Um, unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It really is amazing. The the more that I read and study the Old Testament, if you find this to be true, the more you see the connectedness connectedness to the New Testament. Apart from divine inspiration, I don't don't know how that would be possible. Um, Last Sunday, some of you who were studying and your Sunday school lesson from Zechariah. There are clear, clear prophetic messages and passages there to Christ, specific passages there. Um, There's just this divine connectedness between those. So the first church was established on Christ, built on the scriptures. Jesus, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, all recognized it as sacred writ and all agreed that it was God's word and revelation to them. So the divisions in the Old Testament, the law, the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of Moses, uh, the prophets, um, major and minor, the books of history, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all of those, um, all recognized later, those Prophets more and more towards the end, all of them uh, were recognized to be sacred scripture. So you got 30 different men over a period of a thousand years writing these these books of the Old Testament, um, and they're preserved 
are kept, and then gradually over a period of time throughout Old Testament history, they start being gathered. King Hezekiah, in the Old Testament, talks about him, him gathering the scrolls. When, when Ezra comes out of, comes from Persia, and then Ezra starts gathering, gathering together the books, gathering together the scrolls. So you see that. Um, so that's starting to be pulled together. That was done by Ezra and the priests. Um, in the third century, and, and by the way, there, we don't know exactly specifically how all of that, the exact history of all of this pulling it together. What, what we do know is that uh, the books of the first five books, most commonly viewed uh, to be that Moses wrote that, there was an order to it. So those five books have always been recognized as sacred scripture. There's an order because there's a history to it. So those five books have always been recognized. They've always been uh, kept in order. And then, then later through the, through the work of like men like Hezekiah and Ezra and some other priests, they started pulling together some of the other books of the Bible. There's some order to those. There's early prophets and later prophets. But some of the, the wisdom literature, like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, Lamentation, some of that, there never was any order put into that. So in synagogues, even up into Jesus' day, those, they were containers and synagogues or, or large vases and those individual scrolls were just kept in there randomly labeled and so they would often pull out a scroll and read it whereas the law and, and some of the history began to take shape began to take shape and was put into order does that make sense and um, it, it was believed have you, some of you heard of uh, the council of Jamnia or the work of Jamnia Jamnia, Jamnia, Jamnia was a little community on the western area of Judea. And in AD 70, after the temple was destroyed by who? First time it was destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt in the Old Testament, and then destroyed by Rome, right? They were, there was a Jewish revolt. So for four years, it took, it took Rome, the Roman Empire four years to overthrow it. Remember when the God's Jews took a stand, fortress? Basically, they starved them to death. Um, if you're interested in that, uh, you can go back. And, and Josephus is a just Jewish historian. He writes very, very specifically about that, uh, that Rome overthrowing uh, Jerusalem and redestroying the temple. After that occurred, there were some priests in this community of Jamnia who then be really, it's known to have ordered, finished really ordering the books of the Old Testament, and they were kept, they preserved it. The temple was gone, sacrificial system was gone again when all that was destroyed, and so they're believed to have been the time when this was finally uh, uh, canonized or put into some order. And so, uh, so let me give you kind of a takeaway when you think about the Old Testament, its formation, its canonization. Um, God gave his word. He gave his word. Um, God preserved his word. Um, over 30 men, 30 men wrote it. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, kings, prophets wrote the individual books. They wrote them on scrolls. They were individually written, individually kept written over a period of a thousand years, written in what language? Written in Hebrew, and then gradually they were put into order. First, the order of the books were put into order because of their history, chronological order, and then some of the other books were just finalized. Because really, the wisdom literature and even some of the, the, the prophets just kind of fit in and came in at different times during Israel's history. So they just kind of fit in there. Um, there is consistent agreement, always been among which books comprise the law and the books of the prophets and the history, and believe that the order of it was finalized in, in, uh, in, in 90 AD. 
at Jamnia. Okay? What questions do you have there? If you got any questions, I'll pause and do the best that I can if you, if you have some questions. All right. So how did we get the Old Testament? So if you go back and study history, Bible history, so after God's people settle into the land of Israel, the Assyrians come in, take the northern kingdom. They fall to the Babylonians. The Babylonians eventually come and take the southern kingdom. The Persians then take over and destroy the Babylonians. And then the Persians fall to the Greeks. You guys remember hearing studying history about a guy named Alexander the Great? All right? Took over the, the most of the world at that time. It was Greek. So thus, remember Plato and Aristotle and the arts and all of that that came into existence during the Greek, Greek Empire. Um, Hellenism is called. The, the language gradually that began to spread throughout the entire world was Koine. And so Koine was the Greek language. And so over a period of time, even Jews began, were forced, really, to learn, to write, to speak Koine. That was the universal language of the empire, and that began to transition. When that did, uh, if you're a Jew, what does that do to your worship? If your kids and your grandkids can no longer read Hebrew, they, they learn to read and speak Greek, Koine. That's what led, um, and the, this, in, in Egypt, in the city of Alexandria, that became a, kind of the capital there, uh, in an attempt, some Jewish scholars wanted to make sure that other Jews could still read and study the Old Testament books, the Old Testament law and prophets and writings. So there was, the word, they, they, they worked over a period of several years, probably 100 years, from 250 AD to, uh, or BC to uh, 150, over a period of 100 years, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, into Koine. And the reason that was, and that's called the Septuagint. And so there were 70 scholars who worked together in Alexandria to translate the Hebrew into Greek. The word uh, Septuagint means 70. These 70 scholars who, who worked to do that. Now, there is a legend, there is a myth about that, which I don't know whether I've, I, I'm skeptical of this. There are some who say that those 70 scholars all worked independently year after year, and other scholars... And they, and they translated it independently. And when they all finally finished and multiple people worked on it, when they finally brought it all together, it was, it was unified. All of their translations were identical. So I th there's nothing historically factual about that, but that's what some say. So uh, I'll throw that out there. We don't know. But the, old, the Septuagint really cemented uh, for sure um, it was the first time where things were really started to be put in order. And again, that was finalized in AD 90 at Jamnia. Um, so that's what led to um, translating from Hebrew to Greek. During Jesus' day in the New Testament, um, um, of course, the Greeks fell to who? The Romans. Um, and much of the world still, still spoke Greek. So it's pretty likely that Jesus was educated well and could speak both Hebrew and Greek, read both. Um, in Luke 4, do you remember when he's 12 years of age and he goes into the Jewish temple and his parents find him later and he's, he's reading from Isaiah. It says a, a scroll from Isaiah. That was probably written in Hebrew. And... And so there, were, there was certainly, certainly Jesus' apostles, his people probably were more inclined to be educated and to write and read Greek. 
So pretty good idea that Jesus was, was both. But in the Old Testament, Greek translation of the, of the Bible was what was used in the New Testament when, when people were preaching and teaching and appealing, making their appeal from those scriptures. Again, it was uh, Greek. So um, what, what, again, what questions do you have about some of this? Uh, do what, Ronnie? A little louder. That they did. It would be the same. So the question is, how does the Old Testament compare to the to the Old Testament that you know Orthodox devout Jews would study? They would be the same. Yeah. And Jews today, by the way, would not they would not accept the the Apocrypha. Okay, that remember the Apocrypha during the interbiblical period, that 400-year period. The Bible says there was no word from the Lord, and so there was some books of the books that were written that the Christian, the early church, never recognized as Scripture. Um, I think the, and I'll, I'll get into more, uh, much more on the canonization of the New Testament. So I'm much more familiar with that. So. Just trying to, this has been good for me to kind of shore up and study and read on this as well. By the way, if you want to uh, read something really good, there's a, the, it's, I forget the exact title, but it's about the canon of the Old Testament and the scholar is F.F. Bruce. And I've got four or five I've been reading, but that so far has been really the best. Um, he wrote other stuff as well, but F.F. Bruce would be what I would recommend. Good question. Roy? Say it again, a little louder. Tobit, Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, Esdras, all of that. That was all that that was written during the interbiblical period. So that time, that 400 years between Malachi and then you till you get into Christ. So this, what broke that silence? John the Baptist. Right, really, really, the angel <laughs> coming to Elizabeth, coming to uh, Mary, and then John the Baptist comes on the scene. But there was a during that prior 400 years is where those books of the Apocrypha were written. And again, the um, and I don't know exa exactly why the Catholic Church did. You'd have to go back and study more of that. But the Catholic Church recognized, it. and today uh, there is a difference between a Catholic Bible and a Protestant Bible. Okay, the Catholic Bible still includes the Apocrypha. I don't, I don't really know if priests during worship service actually read or speak from it because usually in a Catholic church they will always have a gospel reading and most of the times they'll still have an Old Testament reading um, in Catholic church. You, you all, some of you grew up Catholic or been to Catholic churches? So, so they're um, big on the gospel, especially the gospels more than anything else. But, uh, so I'm not sure if they do, really do much with them, but good question. What else? Any other things? Yeah, Job is to believe to be the oldest book of the New Testament, or Old, Old Testament, the oldest book, right? And uh, so, uh, before Moses, and uh, um, that's what the oldest book. Um, what else? The, the Old Testament doesn't, doesn't provide a lot of history prior to Genesis. Uh, there's some references in Ezekiel, a few references in Matthew's Gospel. Um, that's, that's a question that's asked sometimes about um, the origin of Satan and Lucifer that described Ezekiel also in Revelation, this Highest of all angels, most beautiful, full of splendor. The Bible describes him. So, but uh, that happens prior to his fall. Remember, Jesus said, "I saw him fall from heaven like lightning." So, and with him, one third. Revelation makes it also clear that one third of all those angels fell with with Lucifer, and thus 
you know, is where we believe those principalities and powers, demons, all of that. So uh, occurs prior to Genesis, but, but Job's certainly the oldest book, what they believe. Good, good question. I uh, mentioned already, but I just, I, uh, I just have a greater appreciation for the scriptures all of the time. Um, I, I find myself more fascinated in the history uh, of, um, you know, you, if you were like me when I was going through high school and going through college and stuff, a lot of the times I just learned stuff to regurgitate it on a test to get through the class. <laughs> Anybody do that? <laughs> and, and now um, history fascinates me more, um, history of the Bible, um, just all of that and how God works through all of that uh, to preserve his word. So, um, yeah. By the way, I came across some, uh, some, some things. During, you remember during the, the Babylonian exile um, and then later, uh, uh, so the Assyrian exile, Babylon, there was some things that I had read also. I need to go back and study a little more. That when they went into exile, um, they they had to preserve much of these scrolls, much of these uh, documents, because they in exile they they would have been destroyed. And so, um, reading through some things like that, and I just the thought that I had was just how God has always worked to preserve. Right, and there's been times throughout history where governments and, and people, those in authority, have, have tried to destroy it, uh, burn Bibles, Bible burnings, destroying scripture. Um, certainly you see that in the book of Acts, where they're trying to, trying to remove that. Um, so God preserves it, preserves his word. So the word of God abides forever. Isaiah 55, right? What, what's going to last? As a flower fades, the grass withers, the word of the Lord abides forever. So just keep teaching, keep teaching, studying, um, especially those of you who, um, who are teaching here, especially teaching our kids and our teenagers, man, give it your best. Give it, give it all you got because I know good and well that a lot of them are not getting a lot of teaching in the home. And so when you get that child, you get that teenager in your class, don't waste time. You know, you may have 45 minutes, and so don't just shoot the bull with them and then spend 10 minutes on a Bible study. God bless you for doing but do your very best to help prepare them for the onslaught that they're getting ready to go into. They're going to leave home. They're going to be away from home. And they're going to start getting hearing things and being exposed to views and ideologies that is going to undermine their faith. Can I, can I close with a personal illustration? The high school that all four of our kids went to was called DuPont, DuPont Manual High School. It was a, a, the highest academic school in the state. Pretty tough to get into. I don't know how ours got in it. But um, they all went there. And heavy on math, sciences, technology, strong visual arts, performing arts. Um, top 10 high schools in the United States on, um, what's the, what's that called? The scholars. What is that called? You know what I'm talking about? I don't remember what the term is. Anyways. It was full of really smart people, very diverse high school population, um, people from all over the world, kids whose parents were doctors and lawyers, and I mean, just some smart kids who were big on math and science and technology, and it was a real melting pot. And our, our especially our twins, our youngest two, uh, had a lot of friends because you go to school and you form a lot of friendships with different people, many of who are very different than you, whose parents may be Hindu or Buddhist. Or, so it was a real melting pot. And uh, Emily and Elizabeth um, 
were in uh, um, performing arts and music, choral and all that kind of stuff. And they, and they formed some friends with, with some people who were gay. Uh, several of their classmates were gay, girlfriends and things. And they became close personal friends with them, which is good, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're a little quiet on that, right? That doesn't, you know. And, they, and so what that did, though, is it created a crisis in them regarding the Bible. Do you understand why that created a crisis? The Bible is very clear about that lifestyle. Okay, and so here they are, they're high school friends, and they love them and care about them, and, and then they, so God is really going to, they have no hope of eternal life, and they started trying to make a decision, is the Bible true, or is my experience, am I, am I, am I going to be dictated to by my experiences and this other thing, or am I going to adhere to the scripture? And it creates a crisis of faith, a crisis of belief. By the way, that, that, I hope that happens to all of our young people. Right? They're, they're not going to be saved by what you as their parents believe. At some point, they've got to make a decision. Am I going to own this for myself? I know this is what mom and dad taught. And most of the time, they never really mature in their faith until they start going through some crisis and hardship. And then that's when they start making some decisions. You with me? Does that make? So what I'm just saying to you is, let's, you know, there, there, there could be a possible mindset, well, I'm just teaching some little kids so I can study for 10 minutes and wing it. Well, you can. And you can do the same thing with teenagers, but you're kind of wasting their time and your time too. You're not really helping them much. They need, they need that to help them to think constructively about Scripture and life. And, uh, and hopefully some things we're teaching them will stay with them. Okay, so because you know that they say 85, 90% of the kids in, in Southern Baptist life who grow up in our church is 85, 90% when they go away to college never come back. That's the norm. Now, it may not be the norm in New Albany, and it may not be the norm here, but I, I would, I've been here for three years, and my first Sunday, that first year here, I think there was 35 or 40 high school kids graduating. It was huge. Some great looking young people. And I don't think I've seen any of them, maybe, maybe a handful of them. I haven't seen most of them since. So are they all going to other churches? I hope so. I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Her her statement was it just seems to be a real issue that a lot of them go away to college and they get disconnected. Yeah, and so, you know, what are what are some things that we could do to help, you know? So, if everybody in this you know, how many kids do we have away at college? And not just kids away to college, some that stay here and work here locally and go and trade. It'd be awesome if if we figured out their 20 or 30, however many they were and everybody adopted one and so every Every year on their birthday, we're reaching out to them, sending them Starbucks cards during time with their season and writing them letters and encouraging notes and calling them and talking with them, praying with them on the phone. If everybody would adopt one, but that's not usually what we, so I'm just saying there's some things we could do. Um, last year, Jack and uh, really tried to, we started a, a Bible study during the summer for 10 or 12 weeks. I think Jack and Ivy hosted it in their home. So all the college kids who came home, we tried to provide for something for them in the summer. So they met in their house, had some food, did some Bible. We just, we got to up our game, <laughs> right? And then uh, keep doing that. So let, let me, let, let's give God thanks tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for the way you've preserved it. 
And we're grateful for the indwelling of your spirit to teach and guide us into all truth. And we do pray for our kids, grandkids, students, Lord. Thank you for Jack, um, his passion, his commitment to scripture, and for our teachers, uh, both tonight and Sundays, and those who do Bible drill and those who serve in the nursery, that, Lord, we can, we can just love our kids and our students at an early age and make sure this is a safe place for them and a place where they're loved and accepted, but a place, Lord, where they're taught the Word. We pray that you would help parents uh, to redeem the time, the years that they have with them, to pour into them and invest them and talk to them, Lord, about who you are and talk to them about your Word. And so we, we pray for that, just that that ministry would just get stronger and stronger here as a church. And again, we thank you for this time together and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.